priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father and his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds." Truly, I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and your kindness towards us in Christ. Lord, these words are uh, profound, and, and they show the glory of our Savior and what he accomplished and what he's all about. Lord, we pray now that as we evaluate who he is and evaluate who we are, that we will be brought to our knees once again in an awareness of our need of Christ. Help us, Lord, to trust you. Help us to depend upon you. Help us now, Lord, to learn from your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see everybody today. Uh, Excited to have some fellowship with all of you afterwards. If you're a visitor with us today, we're thankful that you're here. You're welcome to stay with us and and enjoy our uh, annual Thanksgiving meal afterwards. We have all the tents and everything up outside and food. And at the end of the service, we'll kind of convert this room into a place for us to sit and eat. Or you can sit outside. It's a beautiful day, isn't it? Thankful the rain came at the exact right time, and it's all cleaned up now and cleared out so we can still have our time of fellowship. Uh, Very thankful for all of you that came out today. Looking forward to going over this passage with you. Uh, The title of the message is Jesus Christ, the Antithesis of the World. The Antithesis of the World. So what does that mean? What's the antithesis of the world? Uh, Put simple, he is the exact opposite of the world. Who he is, what he's about, is the exact opposite of what the world wanted in a Christ, wants in a Christ, is looking for in Christ. He's the opposite. He's the antithesis of the world. Today we will examine two ways in which Jesus is the antithesis of the world. Of the world's perception. Christ is the opposite of the world's thinking and ways. The two primary ways Jesus is the antithesis of the world's perception. 
is revealed in our section from verses 20 down through verse 27. So, well, first we will see that Jesus is the antithesis of the world's identification of him, kind of building on what we saw last week and how this whole section is really revealing who Christ is. And it will come to the pinnacle of that revelation of who Christ is and how that pinnacle is actually the opposite of what the world would think and would want in a Messiah. Kind of brings to mind the testimony of or the, the, the witnessing I had as I entered into uh, Israeli air spray space and I was talking to this Jewish couple sitting next to us and was giving the gospel to them and, and gave, read from Isaiah 53 to them. And as I read from Isaiah 53, they were like, hmm, never heard that before. That's interesting, makes you think. Uh, even said they thought that it sounded like the New Testament. And I said, but that's the Old Testament, 700 years before Jesus came. It sounds just like him. And at the very same time as I'm reading this, there's a man in front of me who has his black hat. It was stored above and all of his tassels. And he's going, oy vey, uh, making all kinds of noises about me preaching Christ. Why? Because the Christ of the Bible didn't fit up with the Christ of his mind. Instead, he was the suffering servant instead of Jesus being the suffering servant. Beloved, this is the world we live in. It's the world that says they want a Christ made in their own image. But the Bible reveals to us who Christ is. And in our passage today, that we see Jesus is the antithesis of the world's identification of him. We also will see that Jesus gave the antithesis of the world's purpose for life. He tells us that as a believer and a follower in Jesus, that everything he expects out of his followers is the exact opposite of what the world says life's all about. It's very interesting that, uh, as I posted, I, I believe that Jesus' words are the exact opposite of the title of Joel Osteen's heretical book, Your Best Life Now. It's the exact opposite. Jesus is the antithesis of the world, their identification of him and purpose for life. So let's start with Jesus is the antithesis of the world's identification of him in verses 20 to 23. Let's read it again. Jesus' identity was the exact opposite of the world's identification of him. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. So just to review a little bit, in verse 16, or in chapter 16, verse 20, we see that little phrase, then he, Jesus, warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Then, then is carrying on the, what we had talked about previously, right? The same narrative, the same storyline, it keeps just trekking along. Next verse up, right? So that's where we are. Then, after Jesus had been identified by Peter as the Christ, the Son of the living God, and after Jesus had developed it and shown that he was the rock 
whereas Peter was a rock, he was the rock that the church would be established on and that the message of him would be the keys that would be the message that the disciples brought to free people from bondage or condemn them by rejecting him. Then, after this, after a full revelation of who Jesus is, or a big revelation of who Jesus is, that he's the Christ, then Jesus warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. What? Can you imagine the application from this if you weren't doing contextual observations. If you weren't looking at this passage and looking at it in its context, somebody might say, well, Jesus told them, once you figure out who I am, don't tell anybody. Boy, that would be never preached by anybody, would it? Hopefully not. But this would be the application if we did not know the context and understand the context. Why would Jesus tell them after he was revealed for who he is Tell them, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody that I'm the Christ. The answer to why don't tell people yet was definition. Definition. It's very important for people to understand. The definition of Christ. The Christ. The Messiah. The definition. Why would that matter? Well, because everyone had at that time an opinion of who Christ was supposed to be and what the Christ would do. But most of the opinions of who Christ was and what he was supposed to do were unbiblical. They were not what the Bible said. Or they were out of context and they misunderstood the sequence of events. For example, in John chapter 6, after Jesus had fed the 5,000 and walked on water miraculously on the Sea of Galilee to meet his disciples, there was a group of people, a crowd, that figured out that Jesus had somehow miraculously gotten to the other side. After feeding them, feeding 5,000 people, they saw the miracle, they understood the miracle, they run to the other side where Jesus was, and they ask him, hey, give us some more food, you know, give us some more bread. And they start to realize who he is, or at least they think they realize that he is a miraculous working Christ. Somebody important. And John 6.15 states these words. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him, make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. See, their understanding of the Christ was what? He would be a king that would what? Deliver them. Deliver them from the Roman rule. They wanted a Christ. They had a Christ in their mind. But the Christ in their mind was not the Christ of the Bible. The masses wanted a Christ that would deliver them from oppression from the Romans. Or someone who would make their lives easier here on earth. Do you see the... The thick irony of even our day. Your best life now. They're telling a false Christ. A Christ that does not necessarily want us to deliver us from this oppression or the difficulties of our life here. He has something more important in mind at his first advent. 
The religious leaders wanted a Christ that would establish their self-righteous rule. One that would exalt them. They wanted a Christ that would say, you did it, way to go, you're great. I'm with you. That's what the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes wanted. A Christ that would exalt them for their self-righteousness. And the Romans really had their Christ already in their minds. Who was that? Caesar. Caesar. Their emperor. They would do emperor worship. They worshipped their leader. Their leader was fine. Hey, we were Romans and we won. (laughs) And Caesar's ruling. So their Christ was already established. He was good enough for them. So if the disciples would have gone out and announced, Jesus is the Christ, the world would have either tried to establish and force him to be the Christ of their image, or they would have sought to kill him before the time that he was appointed to die. See, the main problem for people then would not have been dealt with. Who was the Christ? The Christ was the incarnate Son of God that came into the world. He came into the world to do what? To save sinners. To save sinners. To die. Jesus said in his first advent, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. See, sin needed an atonement. And that was the Christ. The Christ was coming to die. And Jesus needed to die the exact time and place and way that the Father had ordained for Jesus. He was going to be the Passover lamb on the exact time that he was supposed to be. Remember, the Christ came the first time in humiliation, as mentioned in Sunday school this morning, to be an atonement for sin. And the second time he comes in exaltation to be identified as the Lord and the King overall. But the people only wanted a Christ that exalted who? Themselves. They wanted a Christ that exalted them. Surprisingly, even the disciples had a problem with understanding the full identity of Jesus. Even the closest to Jesus had a problem identifying Jesus properly, the Christ properly. They were good with the title, the Christ, the Son of the living God. But the suffering servant title was not acceptable to them. It didn't fit even Peter. Notice when Jesus filled in the details of his person and work, it says, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Boy, that's uh, filling out who the Christ is, right? That's telling the The full picture, isn't it? He's revealing who he is. Look what Peter does. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. The son of the living God, the Christ. Rebuke Christ, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Jesus had referred to his death previously. In other passages and in other ways, we know that even before this moment, he had already alluded to his death. But in the times that he had alluded to his death previously, they were all veiled in metaphorical languages 
or a picture, picture language. For example, it is highly unlikely that the disciples understood the metaphorical language when Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. Matter of fact, it says in John chapter 2, verse 22, after John had wrote this, he says, after he had died and rose from the dead, they knew that he was talking about himself, his death and his burial and resurrection. But they didn't know it when he first said it, just like the Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees didn't know it either. See, the problem was is that the world had a Christ made in their own image. And even the disciples had a Christ made in their own image. And a Christ that was going to be all about glory. Can I sit with you on the right and the left hand of you in glory in your kingdom? They're thinking glory, 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 right? But where's the suffering? Boy. Does Peter go from hero to goat in just a matter of seconds? Notice how specific Jesus is here when he begins to tell about his coming persecution and death and resurrection. He says, suffering many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes. He would be killed and rise from the dead. Jesus was fully aware of his coming death even before it was upon him. Psalm 22, we just we read it just a little bit ago. Do you think Jesus knew Psalm 22? Oh, yeah, he knew Psalm 22. He knew Isaiah 53. He knew Genesis chapter 22. He knew the Passover lamb and what it was all about. He knew he was that one. He was fully aware, and he begins to tell them before he dies exactly what he's going to go through. I wonder if he even used some of the words... Quoting from Isaiah 53 or Psalm 22. We don't know, but we know he was telling them over and over and over again from this point on directly, I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer. It's going to be bad. This is hard. See, Jesus was the fulfillment of Psalm 22. Jesus was the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. Jesus was the fulfillment of the spotless sacrificial lamb. He was the Firstborn son who was sacrificed on Mount Moriah. Whereas Isaac was spared, Jesus was not spared. But this identity and work of Christ was the opposite of how even the disciples viewed Christ. It was the antithesis of their identification of Christ. The disciples didn't think the Messiah was here to die it appears that they were unable to put the scriptures together that pointed to their need for a perfect sacrifice for sin. I have to admit, there's so many questions I cannot wait to ask Peter when I get to heaven. There are so many details. Well, how was your sin atoned for? Why would you say this? Didn't you know he had to die? Why wouldn't you know that he had to die? Well, see, the problem is, is that we all have hindsight. We have hindsight. Y'all know what hindsight is? Oh, we see the big picture. We know what's coming. We know the story, don't we? But they didn't have it. Just a warning to all of us in the room. You don't always have hindsight. And most of the time when you don't, and you don't know what's coming, you often buck and complain and grumble against the very Lord who is sovereign over every event in your life. 
I'm afraid that we are all much more like Peter than we want to admit. The disciples were regenerate and they were believers, but they were not fully aware of Jesus' identity and his work that he was going to accomplish at his first advent. Notice once again, Peter speaks as the representative of the disciples, kind of taking them aside here. I'll do this in private. I'll do this in private. Within a matter of minutes, Peter goes from the hero to a donkey, as mentioned, or a goat. Can't use goat anymore because that's greatest of all time in some languages. Hero to a donkey. And you know the other name for a donkey. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Now, it's important to remember we, we get it because we've seen it. We know Jesus came. And we know that Jesus came to die to atone for sin. He made him who knew no sin to be sin become or to be sin on our behalf. That we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21. But they didn't get it. Why didn't they get it? What did they think, by the way? These are the questions that I have. What did they think about their sin? What did they think was the way for their sin to be finally atoned for? Were they still trusting in the atonements that were happening in the, the temple? Did they view themselves as righteous to a degree? Well, we know that to a degree they all did because, after all, what did John, John and James say when they walked into Samaria on the way to, the, to Jerusalem and they were stopping them? They say to Jesus, do you want us to call down fire on their heads? Ultimately, what? They thought more of themselves. Even the disciples thought more of themselves. I get this throughout this passage. You're going to see it over and over and over, this concept that they say, well, we've left everything to follow you. Well, why would you announce that? How many times have you stuck your foot in your mouth, Peter? What is interesting about the whole picture is, is that there is very, very, if any, confession of sin. You don't see it in the disciples, do you? Very rarely do you see them saying, Oh, I blew it there, Lord. You were right. You know, there is some hope in that. And Why? How do we know they repented? Well, because they helped to write these gospel accounts. <laughs> and Peter, probably working with Mark, has it recorded and records his own failures. If he wasn't repentant, he would, repentant, he would have just covered that, wouldn't he? Made an excuse. Why didn't they get the identification of Christ? Ultimately, I believe it's because before the New Covenant's inauguration... The disciples saw even more dimly the glory of the Lord Jesus before the cross and Pentecost. They saw, but they saw even more dimly than what we see who Christ is. So, as Jesus proclaims his coming death, Peter steps up and opposes it. Jesus, you will not die. Peter is speaking in his ignorance. Peter is also speaking with his mind and his heart set on his own interests, not the things of God, right? How many of us do that? Any of us? How often do we do that? Way too more, many times, don't we? Way more than we wish. Let's be honest. 
Don't get out of this room thinking you're better than Peter, because if so, you've missed the whole point. We all need a Savior. I don't believe Peter fully knew what he was saying. And by the way, doesn't it strike you that we have hindsight and we still do the same thing? We know who Christ is. We know what Christ did. We know that Christ died for our sin. And yet, what did we do last week? We sinned. We know that our sin is why he died. And yet, what do we do? We do the same thing. But in Peter's defense, he didn't fully grasp what he really needed. He was a sinner in need of a savior. Yet his response to Jesus showed just how ignorant he was. Jesus' rebuke was extremely stern, however, isn't it? If you ever wonder whether or not there's a case or a time for a stern rebuke, just pull this one up. Jesus did it, didn't he? Can you imagine if you told your child, get behind me, Satan? Whoa! He told it pretty firmly, didn't he? He says, he turns and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, and for you are not setting your mind on God's interest but man's. Jesus shows his thoughts and ways were exactly opposite of Peter's thoughts and ways. Get behind me. Get out of my way. You are opposing my direction and my purpose. My whole purpose for being here, you're standing in the way of that. It's interesting, one of the other passages say that he turned around and said it to him. Get behind me? He was already behind him. Why would he say, get behind me? Because he was talking about the words that were coming out of his mouth more than the position that he was standing in. Very interesting. And then Jesus calls him Satan. Have you ever called anybody Satan? Have you ever been called Satan? Jesus called Peter his adversary. Satan. Yet this is about as harsh as Jesus could have worded it, right? Why? Because Christ's identity matters. And his work is important. How important is the cross? (laughs) How important is what Christ did and who he is? How important is that? It's beyond imagination. It's the most important thing in the world to us, isn't it? Who Christ is and what he's accomplished. Is there anything more important than that in our lives? No. Nothing is more important than that. And Jesus goes on saying to Peter, Blessed... Think about this. He goes from saying... Blessed are you, Simon, son, Simon Bar-Jonas, son of Jonas. Blessed, favored by God, are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. To just minutes later, get behind me, Satan. From blessed son to adversary and opposed to 
God's will for me. Oh, beloved, the more I contemplate this and meditate on this, I can relate with Peter. How about you? It can be seconds, can it? Minutes. We can exalt the Lord with our lips and even with our hearts. And within a matter of minutes, we can be doing something absolutely insane and in opposition to God. That is us. That is me. That is you. We need a Savior. And interestingly here, there's another twist. You know, one thing was consistent as we walked around Israel. Almost everywhere we went. You know what we saw? Rocks. Rocks. Weren't there, Jimmy? I mean, there were rocks. Big rocks, little rocks. Rocks that had been cut out of something. Rocks that were giant rocks. We saw a stone that was almost as wide, maybe wider, than our church building that was in the base of where the temple mount was. One stone cut out. Stones everywhere. Rocks everywhere. And so as Jesus uses these illustrations with rocks, they would have been really fresh in their mind. They would have understood completely. And he uses another one here. He says the Greek word stumbling block where we get our English word scandal, scandalize. So Jesus goes from calling Peter a rock to a stumbling rock, a stumbling stone. You're a rock, but you're one that I'm, you're causing, trying to cause me to trip over. It would make real a lot of sense, a stumbling stone, a, a rock that would cause them to stumble. Why? Because you're walking on paths all the time and there are rocks everywhere. Very easy. Do you see the irony that's so thick here, though? Because this word scandalon or stumbling block, stumbling rock, is what Jesus is called and what he alludes to himself as the stumbling stone. Yet he says to Peter, you're the stumbling stone for me. What is his point? You're causing me to stumble. You would cause me to stumble by your actions. Do not go. You will not die. So everything that Peter thought at that moment, the opposite was what? True. And he was in fact stumbling over who Christ really was. Do you see that? It's, it's amazing. This is how you could word it. Everything Peter thought at that second or that moment about the Christ was opposite of who Christ really was. And by getting in the way at that moment, he was what? Causing or could, was trying to cause Jesus to stumble and get off of who he really was, which was the Christ who has come into the world to die to pay for sinners. Did Peter fairly get it? I don't believe so. He read his Bible and his Old Testament scriptures. He could comprehend the numerous passages about the glory of the Messiah, but he didn't understand the servant passages. He couldn't understand the death of the Messiah. 
But Jesus firmly rebuked Peter and then explained the root problem of Peter's actions. Notice it says it in our passage. It says, for, he says, where is it? There you go. For you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. For you're not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. This literally could be translated, because you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Oh, 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 listen closely, beloved. Listen, he's telling them why he's stumbling and why he became a stumbling stone or was becoming a stumbling stone for Christ. Why he was missing it. Here it is. And listen, this applies so well to our lives. Listen closely. When you blow it, the problem is you have your mindset on the things of man, not the things of God. That was his problem. And the root of much of our problems is the same exact issue, isn't it? When we face times that are difficult, when things don't make sense to us and our understanding, when we can't reconcile God's sovereign plan with our suffering or the suffering of someone we love, we often put our own interests over the interests of God, don't we? Think for a second about that. Listen closely. We are all much more like Peter than we want to admit. When trials or difficulties, mistreatments, sufferings come into your life, do you think, oh, the Lord's in control? I'm going to trust him even when it doesn't make any sense because he's good and he's working for my good and his glory, so I'm going to go with it. Or do we think, by no means, Lord, this cannot be your will for me. Anybody? problem is the exact same as Peter. We often put the things of man over the things of God. It can be from the smallest little thing. Anybody pull out in front of you this week in traffic and treat you back? And you go, what are you doing? Right? Can you imagine at that moment, immediately you heard, get behind me, Satan. Oh, what do you mean? He pulled out in front of me. See, the problem is, is that we have our mindset on the things of man, not the things of God. How many times this week? We're doing a survey. I'm fairly sure everybody in the room would have to keep their hands up all day. Yes, no. Do you look at the world as at your disposal and to serve you? That's me. It's me. We need a savior, don't we? Our problem is the exact same problem Peter had. Yet we have hindsight and he didn't. That should hit like a brick. 
If there was anybody in the room that should understand that God works through sovereign, sovereignly through bad situations, apparent bad situations, to bring about good, everybody in the room that knows the cross should be going, I get it! I get it! I get he's sovereign over all these things, right? We know it! We have hindsight! Peter didn't have it. We need a complete recalibration on our thoughts, don't we? We're seeing things backwards because the world and our flesh scream against God's ways. Peter just says what we all would like to say if put in his own place. This is exactly why Jesus came into the world. Because we're all sinners just like Peter. He came because man needs a savior from the heart that fights against God's sovereign plan. We need a savior to die for our sin, don't we? We need a Jesus. We need the Jesus we need, not a Jesus we want. Whoa, did you hear that? That's so important. We want so often a Christ that serves us in our fleshly desires, when in fact what we really need is a Savior that will die for our sin because we're wretched, wicked sinners. That's what we need. Sure, I'm glad he came for my needs, not my wants. How about you? I don't, I don't need a new car, even if it breaks down. I don't, I don't need obedient children. I sure want them. I don't need them. What I need is a Savior to die for this wretched soul that I am. That's what I need. The Jewish people needed a Christ that would die for them because they were sinners, not a Christ that would make their life easier under the Romans. In the same way, we need a Christ that would die for our utter sinfulness, not a Christ that gives us our best life now. We need a Christ that will do what we can't do, obey perfectly. We need a Christ that will t- could take co- full care of the full fury and wrath of God that we all deserve. That's what we need. The Jesus we need is the biblical Jesus. He's the antithesis of the world's Jesus. So first we see Jesus is the antithesis of the world's identification of Jesus. Now we see Jesus gave the antithesis of the world's purpose for life. Notice in verse 24, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels. 
and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Jesus here is calling for his disciples to live in a way that's the exact opposite of the way the world lives. It's an antithesis of how the world lives. If there was a book title for the believer's life in Christ, here you go, here's the book title. This is the way it should be. I think I should write a book on this, right? Here's the title. Instead of your best life now, it should be pick up your cross and follow Christ. That's it. That's the book title. After Jesus explained the totality and how it's totally opposite of the identification of him, he moves on to how they are supposed to live in the world. That's totally opposite. So let's just be very clear here. Being a follower of Jesus isn't a walk in the park, right? It's not easy. Everybody agree? All Christians? Amen. It's not. Isn't it funny how our gospel presentations kind of water that down? He just wants the best for you, and life will be so much better for you. If you're telling them that, you are lying. Don't tell them that. Jesus says, guess what? You want to follow me? Pick up the death stick. Pick up your cross and follow me and die daily. It's just plain hard, isn't it, beloved? You know what makes it the hardest? It's not really the pains of the physical life. It's not the inconveniences of the world. You know what the biggest part, the hardest part for me is? It's this dead body that I carry around. The sinfulness that I have to kill every second of the day, all the time. It's painful, right? Are you doing it? Maybe you haven't picked up your cross lately. It requires total commitment to Jesus Christ. It requires full dependence upon Him. How many of you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? I see that hand in the others. Great. Here you go. Jesus describes the life of being a follower of him. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Okay, let's ask the question again. How many of you want to be a follower of Jesus? Still there? If anyone desires to follow Jesus, then he or she must be willing to deny himself or herself daily. This is an exhortation to say no to self. No to fleshly desires. No to an easy life. No to self-exaltation. All of you woke up this morning saying no to me, right? Did you do that? The Christian walk doesn't exalt itself or the Christian himself. It makes much of Jesus alone. Now just to make things very, very clear, only one person in history of the world could make this requirement of his followers and it be worth it for them. Once you think about this, to be a follower of Jesus means that you must die to self. You must be willing to die. You must be willing to say no to yourself. 
How many times a day? All the time. Every second of the day. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus, right? You want to be a follower of Jesus? You must be willing to die all the time for Christ. Who else in the world could ever say that? No human could ever make that request. No one could say, you must love me more than father, mother, brother, sister. Can anybody ever say that? I can't say that to my kids. I would never say that to my wife. You must love me more than anybody else. Even though please do. You must love me, he says, more than anyone. You must pick up your cross and follow me daily. You must deny yourself. Who can say that? Only Jesus. Only Jesus is worthy of that. Only Jesus because Jesus alone is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the one who died in my place. The suffering servant that rose from the dead, the Lord, the King, the Master, the one who is to return, he can say that and I will say, yes, sir, I'm your slave, whatever you say, Master. Or as the Canaanite woman said, yes, sir, I'm your dog. Beloved, denying ourselves and being willing to die to self and even physically, if that's what God wills, is a privilege in light of knowing who Christ is. Notice Jesus explains why embracing his call is mandatory, even though it's the opposite of the world's thinking and ways. He gives three reasons humbly following him is even important and required. He tells us why. Look at verse 25. In verse 25 it says, The one who is about all about this life will lose it, but the one who is willing to lose this life for Christ will find real life. He says, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see how that's so antithetical. It goes exactly the way the opposite of what the world says, doesn't it? It's the opposite. One commentator, Morris, explains this reason for dying to self very well. He says, quote, If we regard life as no more than this ordinary physical life, if we spend our time and our resources on getting as much out of this life as we can, Jesus is saying we lose life in its more important sense. To spend oneself trying to get the best one can out of this present life, the here and now, is to lose life in the fullest sense. Jesus is not saying that anyone who concentrates on his own self-concerns will be punished by having his life taken from him. He's saying that by the very fact that he concentrates on his own selfish concerns, that person has lost his life in the best and fullest sense. End quote. Ultimately, if we are all about ourselves, beloved, and our life here... And now, we are not about what really matters. Do you hear me? Now, I I confess. When I say things like this, I have to admit that I struggle in my soul. Are you struggling a little bit? Why? Because life, this life, it's all-consuming, isn't it? I mean, when you get up tomorrow to go to work, you're going to be thinking about what? Work. 
Or when the kid does something that you don't want the child to do and they're disrespectful, what are you thinking about? You're thinking about the the child. It's all this life. Well, you tell me, Lord, don't think on the things of man, but think on the things of God, but I'm here. Yes? Anybody else with me? Jesus is making a point. We're supposed to see everything through the lens of who Christ is and what he's doing, including our work, including our families, and how we react to them and how we live for them. We're to live for Christ. So when our child misbehaves, instead of taking it personally and thinking it's all about me, as Samuel's over there probably misbehaving, and so everybody sees it, and I think, uh uh-oh, Everybody seen pastor's kid misbehave. That would be thinking of who? Me. As he puts up a big L for loser. <laughs> what would I be thinking? I would be thinking of who? Me. If I'm worried about what y'all all think, I'm not living for him. I'm living for me. But, If I'm living for him, I can say something like this. Samuel, if you don't behave, you're going to get a spanking because I want you to know the fear of the Lord. So that you will see that you... So that you will need you... See... Let me be very clear. So that you will see that you need a Savior. It wasn't on tape because I was over here. If we are all... Here and we're all about our jobs, our friends, our pleasures, our possessions, even our country or our community or our favorite entertainments. If that's what our lives are about, our souls are actually lost. We are failing to value what really matters, which is Christ. And when we really value Christ, our eternal souls are satisfied with him. For the record, this is not something we arrive at once and for all, is it? Well, I guess we do in glory. That will be a great day. That will be the day when I have no battle anymore with flesh. Can't wait for that day. How about you? When we are converted we turn from self to christ for the first time but as long as we live in these bodies of death we will continue to turn back to him over and over and over confessing that i'm putting the things of man over the things of god how often do we do this all the time and if you're not doing it all the time you've got a problem because you don't realize how sinful you really are I actually had somebody on the trip on our bus say that I don't sin anymore. You must not read your Bible. And again, just for the record, I can fall into that same trap. And you can too. Next reason, verse 26. I'm almost done. Since we're going to eat here, I get an extra couple few minutes. 
Jesus asked two rhetorical questions in verse 26, and both of them have an implied answer. Nothing. Nothing. He says, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Will profit him nothing. You can have it all. You can have it all and lose your soul, and that means nothing. It's horrible. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Hopefully, nothing. And then third, verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his fathers with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. The fear of the Lord should be the director and guide of our hearts to a degree. He's saying that even to the believer. Now, I have a question for you. What should have happened here? What should have happened is a great revival should have broke out right at this moment. Peter should have fell on his face and said, Whoa! I could very well face your judgment. I need an atonement for sin. How about you? When you face the reality that Christ is going to return one day, his next coming, the second advent, is a coming of judgment. It's a time when everybody will be judged according to their deeds. Now, at this point, some of you in the room are saying, wow, that just, that's got a huge problem with me. Right? How many of you want to be judged according to your deeds? Uh-uh. No, 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 I don't want that. I'd rather not that happen. If that happened, I'm in trouble, Right? What does this cause us to do? Should cause everybody in the room to do the same thing. Help! I need help! If I got what I deserve for all the deeds that I do, I'd be in hell forever. Again, Y'all ask me, how you doing? And I always say it. I try to say it almost every time. Better than I deserve. Because why? I'm not getting according to my deeds. Why? Because Jesus Christ came into the world and he's the Christ that died and rose from the dead too. And that's hope. And I won't face his judgment, I will return in a white robe because of his glory and his sacrifice. There could be somebody here in this room, though, that's trusting in their own deeds, thinking that somehow, oh, I'm good if Christ returns. I'm good. I'm a pretty good person. Hey! I'm not like that pastor up there that's always confessing sin. I'm much better than him. You realize every thought and every action that you've ever thought will be judged by God if you do not believe in Christ. If you are not a repentant Repentant believer in Jesus Christ, you will face judgment. 
How do I know? He said it. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father and his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. I don't like that, Pastor. Be careful. You might be doing the very thing that Peter did. And to that, I would say, get behind me, Satan. For Christ Jesus came into the world to die for sinners like me and you. And there's hope in that, isn't there? So we have good news, don't we? In light of a just and holy God, he sent his perfect, righteous son into the world that whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. Trust in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and your goodness towards us in this passage. Just reminded of how good you are and how great Christ is. Lord, we know that we are the ones that often oppose you and don't trust your sovereign will. And Lord, we need you. We ask for you to forgive us. We ask that you will help us to, to trust you. We thank you that all of our sin is paid for by Christ. That even those thoughts, those worries, those concerns, those times where we were in rebellion towards you, you paid for it by punishing your son on the cross for our sins. We know it was successful and it is finished because Christ rose from the dead. He's ruling and reigning and one day he will return. We know we have hope in Christ and we thank you for that great truth. We pray that you will help us now to pick up our cross and die daily, to trust you, to obey you, to honor you, to glorify you. Because it's all about you, Christ. It's not about us. We love you. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Please stand and let's sing.